0: Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you for the promise of our Savior, where he assured us that whoever comes to him, he would never drive away. So we come in expectation and in faith that you will apply your word to us today. May the good shepherd care for his sheep today, we would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. May we Please open God's word with me to Luke 22. Luke 22, the account of Peter's denial. We will be reading verses 31 through 34, and then jump down to verses 54 through 62. Luke 22, beginning with verse 31. This is God's word. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord Turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, "Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times." And he went out and wept bitterly. All four of the Gospels record Peter's denial of Christ, but they all have a different perspective. So our question is, how is Luke's account unique? What does Luke, through the Holy Spirit, want us to see about this account of Peter's denial for our lives? Let's consider this morning Peter's denial prophesied, Peter's denial recorded, Peter's denial contrasted, and then also Peter's denial illustrated for us what we are to learn. First of all, Peter's denial prophesied. Verses 31 through 34, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Christ prophesied two things, you notice. He prophesied Peter's denial, but he also prophesied Peter's restoration. He denied, he recorded, uh, we have recorded for us where Christ prophesied Peter's denial. Verse 31 repeats his name twice, Simon, Simon. When that's happening, you should notice this is something of great solemnity. This is urgent, this is serious. And Jesus is warning Peter of a great danger. It's only Luke's gospel that records that Christ is telling the disciple that Satan is the one behind all of this. Verse 31, Satan has demanded to sift you, and it's in the plural, as maybe your footnote has. Jesus is warning all the disciples, Satan is ready to come at you and to destroy, desiring to destroy your faith. How would Christ know this? except that he was God and Jesus warned them Jesus warns us that Satan has great power Jesus calls him the prince or the ruler of this world John 16 the Apostle Paul calls him the God of this age 2nd Corinthians 4 and the ruler of the authority of the air Ephesians 2 he binds the minds of unbelievers 2 Corinthians 4, he holds them in his snare until God releases them through the gospel, 2 Timothy 2. Satan can take life, as with Job's children, ruin health. As with Job's body, he can torment with demons, Luke 11. He can provoke evil deeds. He can cause natural disasters. Piper writes, the fact that Satan and his forces have such power in the world should give a seriousness to our lives, which unbelievers do not have. It ought to make us sober and diligent in our prayers and more conscious of needing God's power. When the enemy is supernatural, so must the weapons be. Jesus warns that Satan has great power, but Jesus assures us that Satan has restricted power Even though the verse says that Satan has demanded, that's still asking permission. As with when he wanted to test Job, Satan had to appear before God and be given permission first. And Satan is determined to destroy Christ. He's determined to destroy the apostles. But he has to ask for permission. Jesus warns, Peter of danger. And Jesus prophesied of Peter's three denials. And it's verse 34, very specific. Within hours, this is going to happen this day, in fact, before morning. Christ said three times. And Peter did deny Christ that he even knew him. And how does Christ know this? Except that he is God. In spite of the fact that Peter was warned about the danger, he fell to Satan's attacks within 24 hours. And he learned the hard way. So he would write years later, counseling believers from his experience. He writes, 1 Peter 5 8, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I know. Christ prophesied Peter's denial. But Christ also prophesied Peter's restoration. That beautiful verse 32 starts with, but what's Jesus doing? Jesus is now setting all of Satan's requests and everything that Satan is about to do and all of his attacks. Jesus is setting himself against that. But, and it's even better translated, I myself have prayed for you. The one who's going to the cross to to crush the head of Satan. I am praying for you, but I have prayed for you. What a comfort that Christ's prayers are personal. Verse 31 is, yes, Satan has desired to or demanded to sift you, and the you is plural. And then Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, singular, that your faith may not fail, by individuals. If any, that's the individual sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, 1 John 2. And we're to see here in Luke twenty-two, thirty-two, 32, where Jesus prays for the individual disciples that your faith fail not. This is typical. This is what he's doing for all believers all the time. And what a comfort it is to see how Jesus has told them, I'm already praying for you, that your faith will not fail. Our intercessor in heaven doesn't wait for you to call for him. He doesn't wait for you to figure out that you're under spiritual attack. He's praying for you before you even know you're in danger, before you even have a clue that you're in danger. There are many times in your life when Satan has laid a trap for you, when unbelievers are trying to pull you into the world, or your own lusts are having power that you're naive about and you need prayer. And you don't even know you need prayer or you're not asking for grace. Christ is praying for you. Many times in our lives when we are so weary, we are under temptations, we are under trials, we're confused, we're weary. And sufferings and the depths of our grieving can be overwhelming. And you come to Christ and all you can do is cry before him. The comfort is not in your praying. The comfort is not in your fervent prayers. The comfort is is that Christ is praying for you. And he's praying for you individually. That your faith fail not. Do you often meditate on this? You have a mediator in heaven who's praying for you. Phillips tells the story of a Civil War soldier who went to the White House with a very pressing need he thought only the president could meet but to his great discouragement he found there was a great number of people seeking an audience with the president and there was a whole staff of attendants whose job was to keep them out. He was dejected and had given up hope he fell into a seat and just so happened a young boy passed by him and asked him why he felt so sad and the Soldier said, I've come a long way to see the president. And now I realize I won't be able to. The little boy grabbed him by the hand, led him past the long line, past the staff attendants, past the guards, through a number of doors right into the Oval Office where the president was working. Father, the boy said, this soldier needs your help. And Abraham Lincoln put down his pen, looked up and said, certainly my son. Now, my friend, what can I do to help you? That's what it means for us that God's son, Jesus Christ, is there in heaven at the right hand of the Father interceding for us so that we always have access to the Father. Christ's Prayers are personal. Christ's prayers are effectual. They're always answered. The reason that he can say you will repent and you will be restored is that Christ is praying for them. That's the only reason all 11 of these disciples would repent and be restored and go out be sent out as Christ's apostles. And that's the Lord's guarantee for you, believer. You've come to believe in Christ. Why? Well, because the Father chose you to believe. Why will you be restored from sin with your whole life in times of repentance and restoration? Because God has promised he will complete the work he's begun in you and because Christ is praying for you. Piper writes, not only is God willing and supremely able to save forever all of us who trust him, he also conspires with the Son to keep us trusting to the end. We're not left without a shield against the enemy, nor are we left to hold the shield of faith merely by our own strength. God will always see to it that faith has the victory and that his children have faith. Jesus said, John 10:27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Jesus says to Simon Peter, he says to the 11, I've prayed for you and my father and I are going to hold you fast so that your faith will not fail. And that promise applies to you today. J.C. Ryle, the continued existence of grace in a believer's heart is a great standing miracle. His enemies are so mighty, his strength is so small, the world is so full of snares, his heart is so weak that it seems at first sight impossible for him to reach heaven. This passage before us explains his safety. He has a mighty friend at the right hand of God. Peter's denial is prophesied. And secondly, Luke tells us Peter's denial is recorded in verses 54 through 62. Jesus, Peter does not deny that Jesus is the Christ. He doesn't deny that Jesus Christ is Lord and God. He denies that he's his disciple. He denies that he has any relationship to Christ. Peter's first denial is recorded for us in verses 56 and 57. And then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, "This man also was with him, but he denied it saying, "Woman, I do not know him." Here we can go to John eighteen, which is filling in the detail, that John knew the high priests and his family, and so that's why. John is the other disciple that went to the gate and brought Peter in. So the two of them had been allowed right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there they are warming themselves in the fire, with the fire with the rest of the high priest's servants, and officers. And while they're gathering there, warming themselves, a servant girl asks Peter this question, and he's unnerved. What was he expecting? Was he braced for a soldier to ask him? He was well prepared to face a mob but he's caught off guard by a harmless little girl. Was he not thinking that temptation could come from the small and insignificant ways? Ephesians 6:11 says we are up against the schemes of the devil, his devising. He's calculating how he can get us to fall. And here he plans, Peter, to deny Christ through something very small, a little girl's question. Peter's second and third denials are recorded in verses 58 through 60. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, A man I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Here's a beautiful time to look at each of the Gospels and what they uniquely point at at this moment. It's only John's Gospel, for example, that tells us that the last one who asked the question was a relative of Malchus. That was the one whose ear Peter had just cut off in the garden and Christ had healed. So that man had a particular interest in asking Peter this question. Are you the one? Only Mark's gospel adds another very significant detail that Mark says that Peter was warned that a rooster would crow twice before he denied Christ three times. So in other words, after Peter first denied Christ, a rooster did crow a warning, Peter. You're going the wrong direction. Peter, turn around. And after he denied Christ three times, the rooster crowed again. But only Luke tells us this in verses 61 and 62. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and it's the idea he looked at him straight in the face. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, better literally, the word of the Lord, his prophecy. How he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Christ's look was it a look of anger? Was it a look of judgment? Was it a look of shame? Peter, I'm so disappointed in you. Shame on you. Was it a look of surprise? Didn't see that coming. No, none of those. Christ's look was a look of assurance. Peter, you've disowned me, but I will not disown you. You say you do not know me, but I know you. It was a look of love and pardon. B.B. Warfield said, as our Savior was being tried and preparing to bear the sins of all of us on the cross, he had time to give one glance to a faltering disciple and to save his soul in the saving of the world. Peter's denial prophesied, Peter's denial recorded. Let's consider Peter's denial contrasted. His denial is being contrasted to two others in this chapter. Peter's temptation is being contrasted to Judas, and it's being contrasted to Christ. Peter's temptation is contrasted to Judas. Both Peter and Judas deny Christ. Both have been selected to be of the 12 apostles. They were with Christ for years. They'd witnessed the miracles. They'd heard the gospel proclaimed. They had seen people forgiven and restored and brought back to life. they have been at the last supper together, and afterwards they both weep for what they've done. The difference is Judas' weeping was a remorse, but not repentance. It was a remorse. It was regret. What have I done? And it drove him to suicide, Matthew 27. But remorse is not repentance. Remorse is just feeling sorry for the sin. It's feeling sorry for yourself. It's feeling sorry in self-pity. It's just sorrow. It's regretting the consequences. What did I do? What is this mess that I've gotten into? But remorse will always keep its pride in the process. It won't go to God for mercy. Peter wept, but went to Christ for mercy. The other difference is that both Judas' betrayals, recorded in verses 21 and 22, and Peter's betrayal, verse 34, they're mentioned side by side, both. Men denied Christ, both wept for what they've done. It might appear that neither of them is ever going to recover. What's the difference? Christ has said to Peter, I've prayed for you. That's why you're going to be restored. Our only hope is Christ. Our only hope is Christ's promise and his prayers for us. Peter's temptation is being contrasted to Judas. Peter's temptation is also being contrasted in a greater way to Christ. Luke is intentionally, in this same chapter, putting Peter's temptation with Christ's temptation side by side. Or if you will, it's it's like that split screen on your computer or TV. It's it's the inset box. He's he's wanting to make it very clear. These two, two things are happening at the same time. Christ's temptation is in the middle of Peter's being being tempted in his denial. Christ is being attacked by false witnesses, but he makes a true confession. Peter is being attacked by true witnesses and makes a false confession. The two trials are reverses of each other. And, and why? why are we, what do we just see that Peter's trial, his temptation, and Christ's temptation, what, what's the comparison? Well, it's only by the comparison that we understand the strength and the fortitude of Christ. Jesus Christ is undergoing a colossal legal attack. Yes, Satan is behind it all, but he's he's facing the sharpest minds. He's facing the Supreme Court. And the high priest, he's been in the courts all night, the Jewish courts, and he still has to face the three Gentile trials He's been before the high priest Annas. He's going to be before the high priest Caiaphas. Total of six trials this day. And he's not only standing before the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, but he's correcting them and their own use of their own laws. What strength. Peter's only asked three simple questions, and one of them's from a harmless little girl. And he falls. Christ is having everything thrown at him he stands it's a contrast to show the strength of Christ contrast is also to show the sovereignty of Christ Christ is not surprised by any of this he's foretold at all even to the details he's foretold Peter's denial everything's happening as he said it would Christ's sovereignty over large events over world events to the smallest detail he's being assailed in a kangaroo court to crucify the lord of glory but everything's under his control he's controlling the hatred of the high priest he's controlling the impulse of a slave girl to ask peter a question he's he's in control of even when a rooster crows There's another comparison between Peter's temptation and Christ's temptation, and that is that Christ was all alone. He's been handed into the hands of violent men, and all have left him. And the chapter is pointing out that now everyone has left him, Jew and Gentile, church and unchurched, educated, highest powers in the land, Sanhedrin to uneducated poor fishermen, from enemies to his closest friends who were taken into his closest confidence on the Mount of Transfiguration, who were with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They've all forsaken him. And we're wondering here, too, if we're to see that he's in the courtyard of the most powerful man in the Jewish nation, the high priest, who's denying Christ and there's Peter in his courtyard denying Christ. Are we to see here here's the whole covenant people the whole church. Yes we would expect unbelievers such as Anna and Caiaphas to deny Christ but here's a believer Peter the whole church is denying Christ. The Old Testament is closing with only one faithful covenant keeper. Only one of the whole church is faithful to God, and that is Jesus Christ. Everyone else has forsaken him. Our only hope for salvation must be in Christ alone. That's why the new covenant has to be established on a better surety. The obedience of one, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no hope if our covenant is based on our obedience. The new covenant has to be based upon the death of Jesus Christ for our pardon from sin and based upon the obedience of Christ so that we stand under his righteousness. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone because he's the only one who's been faithful. He's the one who died alone. Peter's denial prophesied. Peter's denial recorded. Peter's denial contrasted. Which brings us to the question Peter's denial illustrated. What, is, what are we to learn from this? Well, at least it's illustrating these two things. If Peter fell, we can all fall. And it's also illustrating if Peter was restored, we can all be restored. If Peter fell, we can all fall, so we must be diligent to watch and pray. Wasn't that what Christ told them in the Garden of Gethsemane? If Peter fell, even with his courage, this is courageous Peter, Not the fearful Nicodemus that has to come in the middle of night, John 3. This is the courageous Peter who has sworn that even if all forsake you, I will not. I will lay down my life for you. I will go to prison and to death for you. This is the courageous Peter who in the face of a mob in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was futile to resist. He knew there was no hopes, but he pulls out a sword and he starts swinging. This was Peter who he did not deny Christ because he was a coward. All the others have fled, they're all hiding. And he he ran at first, but then he stopped, he returned, he went back to the very house of the high priest. Soldiers all around him who could have arrested him. This is not the behavior of a coward. He took courage to be here. He's in the inner courtyard with the enemies, he's behind enemy lines. Barclay says the tremendous thing about Peter was that his failure was a failure that could only have happened to a man of superlative courage. True, Peter failed, but he failed in a situation which none of the other disciples even dared to fare. He failed not because he was a coward, but because he was a brave man. The point is that Peter, the courageous Peter, could fall, we could all fall. If Peter fell, even with his courage, we can all fall. If Peter fell, even with his love, we can all fall. The reason he's there in the courtyard is because he loves Christ. He wants to see what's happening to his Savior. The reason he cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, Christ had to rebuke him, but it was motivated out of love for Christ. The point is that even Peter, who loved his Lord, fell. We can all fall point is if Peter fell even with his confession it's Peter that confesses it of Jesus you are the Christ you're the son of the living God Matthew 16 and all the others were silent the point is that Peter here is he's not a miserable weak specimen among Christ's worst followers he's being represented as the best of the best and yet he's the one who falls dreadfully speedily thoroughly we're to see our hope is not in Peter. It's his example of someone who said he would stand and never deny Christ. No, we are all weak. We will all fall in our own flesh. We're to see that it's only Christ who's the faithful, obedient son. If Peter could fall, we must all watch and pray, knowing that we can do nothing without Christ. We're all like Peter. We can all fall into sin. Any believer, any age, any time, any sin, any sin though we resolve and purpose not to do so. Ryken says we should never think that we are beyond the reach of any particular sin or that we can withstand temptation by our own virtue. J.C. Ryle, the best and highest saint is a poor, weak creature, even at his best times. Whether he knows it or not, he carries within him an almost boundless capacity of wickedness, however fair and decent his outward conduct may seem. There is no enormity of sin into which he may not run if he does not watch and pray and if the grace of God does not hold him up. When we read the fall of Peter, we only read what might possibly befall any of ourselves. Let us never presume. Let us never indulge in high thoughts about our own strength. Scripture says, 2 Corinthians twelve ten: when I am weak, then I'm strong. The verse is true the other way around. When, I'm strong, when I think I'm strong, that's when I'm weak. And that was Peter's weakness and the reason he fell to Satan and denied Christ. And so we must all continually watch First Corinthians ten, twelve. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We're to know it and know it sincerely that we are weak in ourselves and without Christ we can do nothing. Do you believe that? I would challenge you if you really believe that it'll show in your prayer life. Or do we begin the day thinking and saying to God, I, I, I've got this, thanks. If Peter fell, we can all fall. And the wonderful grace of the Lord, if Peter was restored, we can all be restored. Later in Luke's Gospel, Luke's gospel chapter 24, and also recorded in 1st Corinthians 15 after the resurrection the Lord appears first to Peter. It's Mark's gospel, Mark 16:7. Go and tell the disciples and Peter, make sure you tell Peter, I've been risen from the dead, assuring Peter of forgiveness of sins and restoration as an apostle. I enjoy the account in John chapter 20 where Christ is appearing to his disciples after the resurrection. They've gone fishing, you remember. It's this, And Christ appears with the same miracle that he had first uh, given in Luke 5 when he called these men to be his disciples, that enormous catch of fish. And Christ repeats the miracle. They acknowledge that it's him. They come on shore. And then it seems that Christ and Peter went for a walk, the two of them alone. And Christ is asking Peter specifically three times. Do you love me? Three times to parallel his three denials. And each time Peter says, I love you. I do. And Christ says to him, I restore you. I've forgiven you feed my sheep, care for my church. And he assures Peter he's going to remain faithful to the end of his life. Peter, restored and forgiven with no penance, no probation period, no earning back God's love or forgiveness. So too for us all, when you repent of your sin and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you turn from it in sorrow, endeavoring after new obedience there's full and free forgiveness rayburn writes i am like peter and in his inexcusable weakness and you are too there's no use denying it but i want to be like peter as well and i'm sure you do too if i must have his sin as i must i want his bitter tears and i want his forgiveness i want his life growing in holiness as it did to the very end, and I want his end. C.S. Lewis, though our feelings come and go, Christ's love for us does not. It's not wearied by our sins or our indifference, and therefore it is quite relentless in its determination that we shall be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us, at whatever cost to him. Whatever your sin, whatever your shame, whatever your regrets, don't let it be as Judas, just a remorse. But let it be a biblical repentance. Come to Christ for mercy and for cleansing and forgiveness. If you feel that you are broken and fallen and sinful, the gospel's for you. The gospel is the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So abide in Christ each day knowing that without him you can do nothing. Shall we pray? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, what a comfort it is as your children because we know our sins to some degree and we know our failings. We have so far to go. How comforting and encouraging it is to know that he who has begun a good work in us will carry it on to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. How good it is to know that the Spirit who indwells us will give us both the willing and the doing of your good pleasure that you will bring us to repentance, all of your children, and you will cause us to persevere in faith. Thank you for this example from Peter, for how it points to Christ and his perfection and his beauty and his strength and his love for sinners, and how it also is warning us that our enemy, the devil, is a lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. May we be more careful, but yes, may we be more reliant and Every day, depending upon Christ, without whom we know that we can do nothing. We pray in his name. Amen.